You're listening to The Tool Belt, a manufacturing podcast focusing on logistics, safety, operations, and breaking industry news. Welcome to Tool Belt. Please enjoy this live stream audio from our conversation on August 31st. Good afternoon and welcome to Production Pulse, Industry Week's regular series of uh, live streams to discuss important topics in the news. And today, my guest is Mike. Mike, you know, I forgot to ask you how to pronounce your last name, so I'm going to make an attempt here and probably get it wrong, but Bassador? That is correct in the United States. However, if you are in Italy, you must sing it. It is Bacidore. <laughs> Great. Thanks for joining us today, Mike. Mike is, my pleasure. Uh, and Mike is with our uh, control design group and does some great work there uh, talking about uh, where, where the machinery really uh, starts tying into networks. Uh, so it's a fascinating intersection of that ITOT world and where a lot of the really interesting things are happening these days. Uh, we are hoping that Bob Vavra from our machine design group will be able to join us a little bit later, uh, but uh, we're still waiting on some technical issues there. Uh, our topic today is generative AI. Uh, since the launch of ChatGPT and its rush to 100 million users, the fastest in internet history and all these sorts of headlines that you've seen, uh, manufacturers have been asking, what can it do for me? And I keep getting press releases and emails and, and pitches about how great ChatGPT is going to be for the manufacturing world. Uh, but frankly, I'm a little skeptical, and uh, so I asked Mike to come on and talk about what he's seeing and what use cases there might be uh, and, and where AI really is in the manufacturing world. Oh, and it looks like Bob has just managed to join us. So yep. Let me get him on here. Uh, this is Bob Vavra, who is the editor of, uh, excuse me, of Machine Design, and uh, he's also uh, going to be speaking with us too about generative AI. Welcome to the show, Mike. Uh, Bob. Good morning. Hey, Bob. Thanks for being with us. As Thank I said, you. yeah, the, the big question is AI in manufacturing, uh, yeah, specifically this generative AI, ChatGPT. What can it do for us? Uh, wh wh where do you see some advantages? And you know, Mike, let's just start with you. What, what do you see as the the big thing? If you could say there's one thing you could spot that might uh, the manufacturers might be able to gain from this. Uh, sure. Well, uh, you know, AI generally uh, has numerous applications uh, in the manufacturing sector, which uh, you and I have talked about from quality control and digital twin production to production efficiency and predictive analytics. But when we're talking specifically about generative AI, I think the primary applications for those are really in uh, writing code and in creating more efficient designs. And uh, the developments that I'm seeing have been uh, primarily upstream from the factory or plant. In control design, uh, we cover specifically the original equipment manufacturers, so machine builders and system integrators uh, that are providing that manufacturing equipment to the factory or plant. And while there's a curiosity about AI there, the use cases are really coming from the automation suppliers. And there are examples that uh, I can share with them uh, later uh, with you, if you like, uh, from companies like Beckoff and Siemens and Yaskawa and uh, even uh, Emerson, geez, I almost forgot about Emerson. Uh, they're in uh, various stages of AI offering. And uh, the reason I think that this upstream production of the generative AI uh, is probably twofold. Uh, first, there, there's this general 
trend toward democratization of technology uh, where suppliers can provide more cost-efficient automation that replaces either technically skilled workers or the need to create that same technology on your own. Uh, wh why would you spend money to, to build it when you can buy it off the shelf or with some uh, minimal modification from an automation supplier? And then the second reason I think is because the, the cost and the resources needed to create or even to run AI uh, can be higher than uh, many small to mid-sized manufacturers might be able to bear. I mean, the energy cost to power a single server rack uh, at a data center in the United States is uh, $30,000 a year, which doesn't seem like a lot of money. But when you couple that with the fact that a single training run from an AI engine consumes the power equivalent to 120 U.S. households in a year. That's a pretty significant amount of money. Uh, and then with AI, you have these parallel computing um, that's required. And uh, couple that with the fact that CPU architectures aren't necessarily customized for AI. And the fact that AI computing is doubling every three to four months now and then you're, you're looking at a pretty significant uh, cost to those individuals or to those factories and plants. And I think these factors, as you and I talked about uh, recently, Robert, these factors are probably leading us to yet another as a service model. Um, in software as a service, we've seen robotics as a service, we're seeing production as a service now. And I don't think AI as a service is too far off in the, the distant future. As we were talking before the show started today, there have been so many, uh, I, I keep getting press releases and things talking about use cases. There was a, a research report I saw yesterday and it was talking about a lot of things like using uh, chat GPT to better understand your production environment. I'm like, well, that, that I guess you could use it. I can also, you know, cut a you know, board in half using a drill instead of a saw. Uh, you know, you just make a series of holes and you and then break it in half with your hand. But you know, it's, it's not the best way of doing things. Uh, you know, the, the industry has been using AI algorithms, machine learning to uh, better understand its tools and equipment. Uh, predictive maintenance has been around for over a decade now. Uh, quality control you know, using white light systems and AI uh, uh, powered systems to check specs on small parts. That's been around for over a decade now. I, the, the best explanations I've seen for what generative can do are things like, well, keeping track with your sales force, generating emails when something might be behind in the system, something along those lines. So automated alerts, which sure, there might be a business case, but it's not the revolution that we talked about with Industry 4.0. Uh, Bob, what's your take? What are you, what are you seeing or hearing that uh, excites you or, or depresses you about these stuff? Well, and I, I think the... The, the thing that Mike pointed out earlier is really important. It, it This is, first of all, coming from the supplier and the um, system integrator down to the uh, manufacturers. For the large manufacturers, they've got staff on hand who can handle and manage and evaluate this technology on a continuing basis. For the small to mid-sized manufacturers, they're still trying to wrap their heads around what would now be considered some fundamental things like having robotics in your uh, supply chain or, or having better data management than you've got now to be able to evaluate and do uh, predictive maintenance, even prescriptive maintenance. So adding uh, AI into this mix is 
you know, at best daunting for a lot of small to mid-sized manufacturers, they're still looking to understand uh, where the ROI is on this. What's the use cases? What am I going to get out of this? Because in a, the, the service end of it is you can have a uh, an Emerson or a Rockwell or a Siemens manage this for you front to back end to end and send you alerts and that'll all be fine. But that's going to be ultimately an expensive proposition if you don't know what you're looking for, if you don't know what you want to get out of the data, what you want to get out of the AI uh, from the very beginning. So I think a lot of the small to mid-sized manufacturers still want to be educated on how, what the use cases are, how to best apply them to their solutions, and then they're going to start to listen about this. The one thing I've seen about small to mid-sized manufacturers from the start is they are reluctant to change, but if you make a use case for them, they'll move very quickly because they don't have the large corporate layers that a lot of other manufacturing operations have. 50 people can get a tremendous advantage out of data management and AI if they know what they want to accomplish and uh, can be shown a use case for it. So some of these technologies seem so radical and different a few years ago and it become so commonplace. I was uh, doing a webinar the other day and someone mentioned how, well, traditional machine learning can do that. And one of the speakers just pointed out that, yeah, well, traditional machine learning used to be science fiction. So the, the idea that machines can do all these things themselves, uh, what was shocking to us a few years ago, now it's just commonplace. We we have machines that uh, change the cutting parameters based on the output from the machines. We have uh, relatively inexpensive systems in some cases that can uh, adjust production speeds to to match the um, machine conditions and weather conditions and things like this. Uh, so th th this, is, this is, the industry has gotten pretty sophisticated in terms of like a lot of these as a service type offerings that uh, you've both mentioned um, or even the, the, the in-house solutions. Yeah. I, I don't know if there's necessarily a, a, some wariness of the idea of AI. It's just understanding what AI really is. Yeah. Well, and I think uh, to your point, these small, these smaller to mid-sized companies uh, certainly can turn on a dime. That's a great point. The, the fact is with predictive analytics or predictive maintenance, even though, I mean, that's been around for 50 years, mm -hmm. a very long time. And the problem with, making that transition in a lot of these smaller companies is the culture change that's involved with that. Yeah. And I keep hearing a lot now about, oh, we'll just, we'll just add AI or we'll just, uh, we'll add IIoT to it and that'll fix the problem. And now all of a sudden we'll just go and we'll be a, a predictive maintenance, uh, uh, we'll have a predictive maintenance strategy in place or prescriptive uh, if we're using AI, for example, but that doesn't happen without the culture change. And so, especially at those smaller companies, that could be a, a very daunting task is you've got older employees who have a lot of tribal knowledge that um, they can walk into the building and smell a bearing that's about to, about to fail. And how do you get them to buy into this new AI-inspired system that all of a sudden is going to take over their jobs? Yeah. And I think one of the things that we've seen in that, the, the, the gap in employment right now is we have those experienced workers that you talked about, Mike. We've got the young people coming in who are expecting AI, who are expecting right. Absolutely. predictive maintenance. We have a gap in the middle, though, of 
uh, an age group that we don't have a lot of, that we need more of, who are uh, have, have a little bit of both. They've got some experience in manufacturing, right. but they've also got the uh, willingness to, to take on some of these more automated uh, operations, these more uh, digital operations, and really get the value out of them. I, th I think one of the things that I, I've seen a lot over the last few years is that you know th th this revolution all started because sensors got cheap and uh, data management got more powerful. And suddenly we were measuring things that we'd never been able to measure before in timeframes we'd never even imagined. The downside was we didn't always know what to do with the data. <laughs> right. A, a lot of AI is giving us the, the ability to better parse that data and deliver it to the right person at the right time in the right context. But you're absolutely right, Mike, is that the technology works. It's the people that are going to slow down the adoption of this. It, you've got to have a strong culture that's not only top down saying this is the direction we're going to go, but middle out that says, here's how we're going to take this directive from the C-suite and move it into our operations so that we're more efficient front door to back door to begin with. And then we involve our full supply chain in adopting all of this. So we've got a much deeper, stronger ability to take full advantage of the data. Absolutely. Uh, the, the whole idea of uh, the unintended consequences of the cell phone or the smartphone really was, I mean, the, the, the cheap cameras, the, uh, the, the cheap, powerful, rugged cameras that turn out to be just ideal for industrial settings where there used to be, you know, setting up a CCTV system in a factory to try to track quality. One, the quality was awful of the, the quality of the imagery was awful. Mm -hmm. It was incredibly expensive. It was slow and not terribly useful. Now, boy, it's pennies to put in a camera on just about every single machine in your system. And then right. with the right uh, tracking software, you, you don't really have to have a person sitting there every day monitoring that and trying to figure out what's going on, you get automatic alerts as, as long again, you have to have that software partner, you have to have someone coming in, showing you what to do with the information. Uh, just just having the images doesn't help. Yeah. But uh, the, the cost is is minimal compared to what it would have been a few years ago. Sure. The other thing that I think that is, is, is really changed is that most of the systems, not all of them, but most of the systems that we're dealing with these component parts are agnostic. So you can take a Rockwell controller and a uh, a camera from another vendor and another, you know, you can put them all together and they will work seamlessly with one another. And so you can kind of pick and choose. That's where the integrators come in. I think where where their real value is, is being able to find the various uh, Lego blocks and put them all together for you to give you a, a strong front to back uh, uh, system. I really like the the idea that uh, we're, we're getting much more um, systematized by the some of the larger vendors. Siemens has come out with Accelerator, which is a great, a great product. Nobody is going to buy Accelerator front to back, soup to nuts. But the concept is, look, we can integrate anything you've got with anything we've got and drive it throughout your organization and give you all the information you're looking for. Uh, no plant is going to rip and replace and put in Accelerator but plants are going to be able to say, I need to manage that data better. I need a great overlay to uh, the systems that I've got now, and I've got to have confidence that I can connect everything to everything else. Right, yeah, great points. Even, even to that end, uh, since you brought up Siemens, um, that was one of the, um, at the, the ARM Institute, the um, 
Advanced Robotics for Manufacturing Institute, which is one of the Manufacturing USA Institutes. I think there were 16 or 17 of them around the, the country that were originally funded uh, back in the, uh, I think during the um, uh, Obama administration. I drew a blank on Barack Obama's name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the one of the projects they have eight new projects that are being uh, funded for the second round. Uh, I think the original funding was about one and a half million, and now they've dumped in another one point seven million. And uh, Siemens and USC is developing an AI uh, that can help to more clearly define um, precision uh, programming for robotics for scooping um, materials for. Um, different processing applications. Uh, and th that, I mean, that's a great example of a, a generative AI application where it's creating robotic code uh, in order to primarily replace workers who, you know, spill things and who are, you know, need breaks. Um, so it's, it becomes much more cost efficient. And I, and in that same uh, ARM Institute, uh, one of the other, I think there are eight applications uh, that are up right now. And one of the other ones is uh, from Ohio State and um, Yaskawa. And uh, what they're doing is they're um, deploying AI robotic systems that are capable of uh, producing component geometries, uh, primarily for metal forming. Uh, and and there's, a, there's a US um, military partner in that one. So it's being used for a military application as well and, and as well as uh, in the automotive field. Uh, and then there's uh, there, there are two other applications uh, that I did want to mention as well uh, in the generative, generative AI. Uh, one of them is Beckoff has uh, a twin cat chat client, which uses chat GPT uh, in open AI. It's cloud-based and uh, it's used to generate function block code. And it's on the verge of being released, the last I knew, um, but it's uh, forthcoming, and, and even at this point, Beckoff does say, you know, you want to review the code before you go ahead and implement it because, you know, it's still uh, in its, you know, formative uh, uh, application. And then uh, the one uh, software that is available now is Revamp from Emerson, which is for uh, plant modernization, uh, where it can generate code for your safety instrumented systems, for your control systems. Um, and uh, I mean, of course you need the Delta V DCS uh, to be able to use uh, this one with Emerson software, but why, you know, why would you, if you were you know, on a Rockwell based platform or, or something else? Um, but the, I mean, these are all examples of generative AI uh, software that is either on the verge or in the case of the Emerson is it's here. Mm -hmm. It's it's ready and it's coming from the supplier down through uh, the automation uh, distribution channel uh, right to the factory floor. Yeah, that's great stuff. Uh, we're running a little short on time here. Just uh, one last question for both of you. Let's start with you, Bob. Have you played around with generative AI? Have you dealt with ChatGPT or Google's Bard or any of these others uh, to, to see what they're capable of? And what do you think? I, I have not played with with ChatGPT at all. I uh, uh, I, I prefer ChatBob. 
uh, I've uh, I'm old, old, old school. I my my first uh, publishing was on stone tablets, so I'm uh, uh, I'm understandably a little uh, leery of it. I I think uh, for those things that need to be vanilla, uh, ChatGPT is a great uh, uh, is a, is a great tool because it does get you to exactly the middle of the road and exactly what, you know, what you put in is what you're going to get out. Um, but I think, and I think to Mike's point, from a coding standpoint, there may be some real value there that can be more um, intuitive than, uh, than uh, a human might be able to manage. But I'm, I, and I think one of the stories that popped up as we were talking about this, we are looking at the the limits, both the practical and the esoteric limits of things like uh, generative AI. And I think that's where people are going to take uh, baby steps before they uh, uh, they get convinced that it's going to help them or it's not going to help them. All right. Thanks, Bob. And you, Mike, have you played with uh, these tools at all? What, what do you think of them? Uh, yeah, certainly. The chat GPT uh, has, um, my experience at least, has been, I mean, we've used it for content uh, purposes, and uh, it does tend to be redundant. The, the, the issue with it is with the chat GPT, for example, it's a, you know, it's a singular conversation. So there's no, there's no context to it, you know, whereas like with an auto GPT, you know, you've got some overarching uh, type of objective that it uses its memory to try and get to uh, optimizing a solution. So uh, with ChatGPT, it's got its place, but it, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't really get smarter. It, you know, it needs recalibration before it can do something better uh, than it did it the last time. It's, you know, it's still going to give you the same, the same answer to the same question. So that's that's the real issue I have. I, I've been playing with with all of these uh, back and forth for the past uh, few months, and I, I found some real use cases, but they're very specific use cases. I, I think it's probably the best tool I've ever seen for fighting writer's block. You're you're stuck on a story, you're stuck on a line. You boy, you feed that into Chat GPT and say, "Give me some other way of saying this." And it doesn't even usually give me something I can use, but at least breaks that mental logjam and gives me some ideas on how I can approach that. Great idea. Um, I, I've, there were a couple of stories I was editing that um, I just didn't like the way they were organized. So I fed them into the system and said, hey, put this in a more logical order. And it, it did a fairly decent job of that. Still had to go back and work with the author to rewrite large sections of it and really make that work. But it, it had some suggestions there that were kind of useful. I, the idea of using it to just generate content from start to finish, I'm not sold on. But I, I kind of look at it as almost like the spell checker or the calculator, even the calculator for words. The people who have uh, you know, the calculator, the, the handheld calculator, when uh, Texas Instruments came out with that in the '60s, created a, a new environment. There were people who were had a decent head for math, but were bad at arithmetic. And mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you took that one skill they didn't have and took it away and uh, you took away the need for it because you had a machine that could do the addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. I, I kind of see ChatGPT and some of these other tools in that vein. It's, it's yeah, for people who 
have a good something good to say and have some great thoughts, but struggle to get the individual sentences out. I think it's a fantastic tool for them. I'll be really curious to see where we are in 10 years or so when this mm -hmm. becomes a tool that people use to improve their writing. I, I don't see it as something that generates material. I think it's something that can definitely improve material. And I think in the manufacturing world that could, we could see the same thing when it comes to a great programmer can probably come up with a really clever way of getting that machine to do exactly what they want it to do. A mediocre programmer who might have some good ideas but doesn't know how to write code, mm -hmm. there are some opportunities. And we're already seeing the low, the low code and the no code applications throughout manufacturing. This could really uh, open up programming to a wider group of people and that, that's kind of exciting. Like I did, I do remember hearing, I know we're uh, getting close on time here, but I do remember hearing uh, Andrea Zeman from Pearson Packaging at, at Rockwell's Automation Fair last year. And she was talking about AI and, and how soon she expects it uh, to be here. And she's uh, about my age, so not a young person necessarily, but she was saying, you know, at least within the next generation, she anticipates there being AI available at the plant level or at the factory level. And one of the things that it dawned on me was that, you know, right now we worry so much about cybersecurity and opening the plant network up to infiltration and cyber uh, cyber threats. And once you have that AI within the factory or within the plant, that really eliminates a lot of the necessity to open up that network, except on, you know, a very limited basis where it's, you know, red light, green light, uh, if there's a red light, that's a problem because the factory's running autonomously. So I guess somebody needs to get over there and see what the heck is going on. But aside from that, 10 years from now, we might be talking about plants that are just running themselves. Yeah. <laughs> just like we're talking now about how the technology from 10 years ago just seemed like science fiction back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, Bob, Mike, thank you so much uh, for your time today, and uh, thanks for participating in P uh, Production Pulse. Uh, if you want to read more about this, there's a lot of coverage of AI and generative AI issues in control design, machine design, and at Industry Week. Thanks for your time today, and we'll be back in two weeks.